Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com/upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm David Knowles. And this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we discuss the latest updates from Ukraine, analyze a leaked video of what appears to be the Wagner Group recruiting convicts in a Russian penal colony. And we're on the ground in Samarkand, Uzbekistan, ahead of the first meeting between Russian President Vladimir Putin and Chinese President Xi Jinping since before the invasion of Ukraine. We are facing a very serious crisis in energy caused by Putin's war in Ukraine. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading reporters from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Thursday, the 15th of September. Day 204. And today I'm joined by associate editor Dominic Nichols and our Russia correspondent Natalia Vasilyeva calling in from Uzbekistan where she's reporting on the Shanghai Cooperation Organization's 2022 summit in Samarkand. I started by asking Dom for the latest news from Ukraine. Hi Dave, hi everybody. We still don't get a haven't got a, an accurate picture of quite what consolidation is happening in the north, uh, although we we do know that Ukraine is pushing in other military units and other elements of of state authority police uh, and what have you to to hold on to the gains that they made over the uh, over last last weekend um elsewhere down sort of more in, into the south in in um and uh, near Kurzon, the town of Kuvri, and again, I apologise for my mispronunciation, um, which is north of Kurzon, about um, maybe 100 k's, 100 k's north of uh, of Kurzon, uh, President Vladimir Zelensky's hometown. That was hit by eight cruise missiles, and more specifically, the dam in that town was hit by eight cruise missiles, which caused a huge amount of flooding. The the river uh, swelled to about an extra two and a half meters, which which uh, I think we the latest estimates are over a hundred homes were flooded, and and we are told that the, the waters there are receding, and there's no immediate threat to life. However, I mean that's a that's a a major piece of infrastructure that's been hit there. Um, I mean I can't see any military significance to it. It's not as if there's any anything. Any military base downstream, or any re- any reason to hit that other than other than just to, um, as we saw in in the immediate response to last weekend's lightning strikes in in the north, we see we see Russia just hitting back at um, critical national infrastructure. Just after the weekend, they hit power stations. Now they're hitting a dam and and possibly or at, seemingly attempting to flood the city, which has, as I say, symbolic value. It's, it's President Zelensky's hometown, but you know, no no military significance. I mean, I, I'm no, I'm no international lawyer on this, but quite where, where, how far you get to the edge of it being a war crime if you're targeting um, elements of of the nation that is that is critical to life and limb for civilians. I mean, that in itself, it, it, that is a war crime. But I don't know quite where this would where this would stand. But you know, it 
it's ridiculous. It doesn't have any military effect. All it does do is it underlines what we've thought for many, many weeks now that that Russia has, and there's an inability to to push back. All they can do is chuck missiles around at civilian areas and uh, and terrorise the the population. That is what is what is happening here. What they're attempting to to do here. So we'll keep an eye on that. We'll see what um, if the if the, the water levels do rise again and whether any more of the city has been flooded there but that seems to be the only the only response only military response so far to to ukraine's lightning strike last weekend dom can i quickly ask you to comment on uh, you wrote a thing for the telegraph about some footage that we've seen from the battle for the kharkiv region um footage from a gunner's body camera um you wrote a little bit about it could you tell us what we what we saw and what it tells us about the ukrainian advance yeah, so this was really interesting. This is footage. We're not quite sure the vehicle. It might be a US-supplied Humvee, but we're not entirely sure. It's, uh, it's it's taken from body cam. It's going onto a position, and the, the individual filming is firing a heavy machine gun. Not sure exactly of what, what calibre. And this was supposedly part of last weekend's uh, push in the in the northeast. And so the piece we wrote, uh, I wrote with, with Roland, Roland Oliphant, um, we were talking about what tactics we saw and as we've said as we said yesterday and, and a couple of days this week we think that what ukraine tried to do or did do actually did do very effectively was was bypass areas of heavy russian defense mark mark and avoid basically mark mark areas and uh, leave that for, for follow-on forces either artillery or heavy tanks to deal with but get as far and as fast as possible so this was as we think was largely wheeled based so humvees Australian Bushmaster, even Toyota 4x4s we, we've seen images of. And their, their tactic seems to be to, to just to race ahead, very lightly armoured, so that we think they may have had anti-tank teams on board and um, heavy machine guns, but actually they're, they're not able to put up with serious opposition. So we think they would, they would if they came into contact, they'd sort of scoot around and, and bypass and, and move on. And this is um, this is very interesting. So this is a bit of a hybrid of Western and Soviet slash russian doctrine so in the west we generally don't aim to fight for information our reconnaissance units try and do it by stealth so they sneak around and they they sort of use optics and other electronic surveillance methods of carrying out reconnaissance so we we don't we don't we aim not to get into into the contact battle so we use lighter vehicles that 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 still carry you know pack a punch but they are not designed to to have a have a major punch up with a you know, T72, for example, and nor are they they are so far ahead of of forces these sort of what we call formation reconnaissance. They'd be so far ahead of the, the wider force that they've got no no great immediate backup. So we don't fight, or we don't seek information that way. We try to we try to sneak around, and it is possible to sneak around even in an armoured vehicle. You can you can move if you if you've got a good competent crew, you can. Um, uh, you can apply intelligence to the battlefield, and you can you can use your use the ground in a smart manner and and, and sneak around that way. Soviet and Russian doctrine, by contrast, uh, is very happy to fight for information. So they would have their BMP armored uh, or infantry fighting vehicles up up the front. They would also have tanks with them, at least a tank in a grouping of three or four BMPs that would that would then go looking for information. And they look for information. They're quite happy to get into a fight. If you get into a fight, then the the enemy or you know, whoever you're fighting reveals the weapons they've got and their dispositions and, and so on and so forth. So the Russians are generally happy to fight for information, whereas we don't. Um, so what Ukraine did last weekend was a bit of a bit of a mashup of the two, a bit of a kind of hybrid um, 
as we've seen, great innovation from the Ukrainian forces over the last few months. That seems exactly what they did last weekend. So they used very lightly armoured vehicles, very fast vehicles. And of course, an armoured vehicle is generally a trade-off between three things. It's, it's firepower, protection and mobility. So you can have as, as protected a vehicle as you like, but you know, you're never going to move very far. You can have an enormous gun, but again, you need a very big vehicle to put up with the, with the shock of, of that kind of firepower so, so it doesn't lend itself to small, nippy little things. Or you could be small, light and, and very fast. But if you do that, you haven't got a great big gun and you haven't got a lot of armour. So always a trade-off. Now, what, Russia, oh, sorry, what Ukraine seemed to have done last weekend was go go hell for leather on the mobility side so so very lightly armored very lightly protected but great mobility so very fast great cost crunchy capability and very nippy and mobile um but they were still prepared to fight for information so they would go forward get into a punch up and then and then bypass where where possible and we think they were only stopping dismounting these anti-tank teams where they absolutely had to so it, it was a really interesting way of um of, of showing what, what can be done on the on the modern battlefield a, a, a sort of hybrid of this but using light vehicles which are primarily designed for, for stealth because they can't they can't really put up with much punishment coming back their way but also being prepared to get into harm's way and see what's out there and then and then run away as quickly as you can when the enemy reveal what they've got so it's very interesting to see them them adopt these tactics last weekend it had great effect now of course, on the flip side, Russia, as we've said many, many times, suffers from uh, poor morale, lack of training in many respects. They've, we think they've largely burnt through their Premier League um, fighters, so they're on to those of, of much lower military experience. Um, we don't think they are very well supported in terms of looking after their people, food, medics, and so on and so forth, or looking after their vehicles, so the serviceability is probably quite poor. So this this new, I'm not suggesting this Ukrainian tactic of of light light vehicles rushing headlong at the enemy um, should be should be rolled out for every single scenario. It was it was appropriate for the time and space time and place that it was used. But that in itself, using the right tools for the right job at the right time, is is operational art. That is the that is where the where the bosses earn their earn their stars. Literally, I mean they they should think about this it's the intelligent application of all the information available to them and they decide where and when to mass forces and in what in what um sort of uh, what mix of light and heavy forces and so on and so forth so it, it was all it, it was very good um direction of the war i would suggest not appropriate for every single every single scenario but in this case it seems to be when you break through that russian crust um, then there was very little behind it, and what what little there was could could be marked, bypassed, and avoided as they uh, they continue their their push up to the Oskar River. Thank you very much for that, Dom. Just one one more update, I think, to talk about before we move to Natalia, who's in Samarkand in, in Uzbekistan. And I don't know, Natalia, if you want to come in on this as well. But Dom, would you just start us off? Evgeny Prigozhin is back in the news. There's been an extraordinary, uh, we think, a leaked footage of Mr. Prigozhin um, offering the chance to fight in Ukraine for Russia to hundreds of prisoners in a penal colony. Um, can you tell us what we saw and what it might tell us about um, about Russia's armed forces? Yevgeny Prigozhin is a is rumoured to be the head of the Russian Wagner group, the mercenary group. He denies it. He's always denied it. Um, he's known as Putin's chef because he's got a, a sort of food and restaurant empire. That's how he came to uh, uh, to know Putin in the first place. He, he 
in New Putin from St. Petersburg, where Prigozhin had a number of outlets and uh, got to know Putin there and, and now has some very lucrative um, contracts with the Kremlin. So he's known as Putin, Putin's chef, supposedly the financier and, uh, and director of the Wagner Group. He's always denied that. However, here we go. Here's this, this footage comes out of him addressing a, a group of people saying, come and join the Wagner Group. This this is what you can do. This is where we fight. This is what this is what's happening in Ukraine. Um, come and work for us, which is you know completely at odds with with every every other utterance that we've we've had from from him and from Russia about the about his position and the Wagner Group and so on and so forth. It speaks of Russia maybe trying to get around this need for for increased personnel, so not going for general mobilization, but but seeking to use. Um, mercenary groups and seeking to recruit to those mercenary groups from from prisons and 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 elsewhere none of this will count as sort of regular forces and therefore there's no mobilization no problem with personnel mr putin would say um but it uh, uh we don't think conditions are brilliant in the wagner group they're not massively well supported they get they are an extension of the russian general armed forces however when um when things go bendy, they don't seem to be very well supported, looked after in terms of medical supply, equipment, and so on and so forth. So, um, this footage allegedly of, of Prigozhin trying to recruit to to Wagner is a is a is a very interesting development in terms of him and his association with the Wagner Group. But it also comes. I would direct you to today's post from the Institute for the Study of War, U.S.-based think tank, that is suggesting that. Prigozhin is, and in their words, he's becoming established as the face of Russia's special military operation, unquote. Uh, now, I don't think anybody would want to be the face of this operation. I mean, God, if ever there was a, you know, you're being asked to stick your head in the mangle, hand, or whatever it is, your hand in the mangle, head in the lion's, the lion's jaw, I mean, you're setting yourself up for failure, or possibly it's just been, he's been made an offer, offer he couldn't refuse. But there's they are suggesting that uh, Prigozhin had a meeting recently with a with a prominent uh, military blogger, Maxim Fomin, who is a very a sort of ultra nationalist. Uh, one of these bloggers we've been speaking about recently, who are so so pro Russia and so in favour of the war in Ukraine that they are outraged and incensed at the failure of the Russian army to to win. And they, in particular, they were they were disgusted at, at Russia's performance last weekend, and they um, and the the route from the Ukrainian army and and this military blogger community is very vocal and um although not not hugely numerous we think that we think they that yeah 15 20% of the of the russian population sort of read this stuff believe this stuff listen to these people i mean that's still that's still quite a sizable minority um and they're becoming a bit of a pain for for putin and so the isw is suggesting that that prigozhin has been has been cajoled or been been invited to act as a bit of a go-between between this uh, the, the the military blogger community and and the Kremlin. Uh, the Kremlin needs needs the um, it needs to keep them on side. It needs to win them back because a lot of them are are very anti-Kremlin and anti the direction of the war. There's also a suggestion from from the ISW Institute for the Study of War that that this role of Prigozhin, this this sort of go-between, this um, link to the to the ultra-nationalists. Uh, is also a way of raising his profile, and they question whether or not Sergei Shoigu, the um, defence minister, is being sidelined, and Prigozhin is being given a, a, a greater role, and p- possibly, potentially in the future, taking over from him as the as the defence minister. So, 
there's a lot of speculation there, a lot of what ifery based on on a few pieces of information um, that we think are, um, are authentic, but uh, all, all very interesting stuff. And and it and it does speak to an, a lot of the themes that we've been talking of lately about this, the right wing blogging community and the and the lack of Russia to get ahead of the narrative to to try and to try and sort of put anything convincing into the public sphere that would account for this great um, this this devastating defeat last weekend so interesting to see Prigozhin come to the fore now interesting to see footage of him openly linking himself to the Wagner group something he's always denied I mean it makes no real difference if he's always denied it there's been there's been a lot of suggestions anyway um, but yeah just seemingly seemingly some some moves here to try and shore up that kind of right wing element of um, the Russian society that that are in support of this war but increasingly anti the Kremlin's management of it. Thank you very much Tom. Uh, Natalia just before we go to uh, Samarkand and what you're doing there do you want to add anything to that? Um, sure, yes, I'm totally with Dom on the Wagner video. It's quite extraordinary, especially given the fact that uh, Prigozhin has for years denied any links to Wagner, the private military contractor that uh, we know he founded and he has been funding. So it's quite extraordinary for him to say it that, that that's his company. And um, it's um, quite mind-boggling that obviously Russia's manpower shortage is so big that he would personally tour prison colonies to um, uh, to get recruits. So, yeah, that, that, that tells you a lot about where the, war is, where the war is heading at this point. Well, Natalia, you are in Uzbekistan. Um, let's jump straight into that. Why are you there and what have you seen so far? Yes, that's, that, that's correct. I mean, I'm not in Ukraine, but this is also a place where Vladimir Putin, the president of Russia, and uh, Xi Jinping are meeting this weekend in uh, something which is um, quite an important meeting for Vladimir Putin while the Russian army has been sustaining heavy losses. And he's meeting one of the few uh, world leaders who are um, who don't mind shaking his hands and doing a photo op with him while he has essentially become an international player because of his invasion with Ukraine. Uh, for Xi, this is also the first foreign visit since um, the COVID pandemic. This is the first time he has literally ventured out of the country. Um, and it's quite symbolic that they're meeting in Samarkand, which is an ancient uh, city on the uh, Silk Route um, in Uzbekistan and Central Asia. Um, uh, parts of which, um, well, the, I would say um, the largest parts of Central Asia um, used to be part of the Soviet Union just 30 years ago. And in recent years, parts of Central Asia have seen major uh, Chinese invest investment. And uh, uh, China has been anxious to um, expand into uh, Central Asia, which is where Russia and China's interests might overlap and might, might collide as well. Before we talk about Putin and Xi's relationship, their personal relationship, could you just give, give us a sense of the atmosphere at the moment in Samarkand? What's it like for you there as, as a reporter? Yeah, this is actually quite extraordinary. Um, I have covered uh, many summits and high-level meetings in my career, including I've just realized that almost exactly a year ago, I was in uh, Geneva in Switzerland for the Putin-Biden summit. And obviously, uh, you can imagine that security um, measures were quite tight for the president of the United States and the president of Russia, um, yet there is nothing. Um, what I see, what I've seen um, uh, in Samarkand so far, is, is nothing comparable to that. 
the city is basically on a security lockdown. Uh, schools have been shut down, as well as um, public offices. Uh, private cars are not allowed on the roads. Um, uh, this is quite a big city, which is typically bursting with life um, and activity. And now it feels a little bit like a zombie apocalypse because there are basically no people. Um, locals are nowhere to be seen. There are not any tourists. Um, there are lots and lots of security officers, police officers, um, snipers. Um, if you were to take a walk, as I did this morning, around central Samarkand to one of the main sites, you would literally see a policeman standing apart 100 meters of each other, staring at you as you walk by. They wouldn't stop you. They didn't even check my documents, even though I had my press uh, badge. But... Um, you can, I mean, it's, um, this is definitely unprecedented security measures and uh, the organizers have been quite cautious um, commenting on it. Uh, the official line is that these are the rules and regulations imposed by the entire um, Shanghai Cooperation Organization. Um, although some of the measures suggest that they might be, um, that some of those measures have been encouraged or directly um implemented by the Chinese, including uh, obligatory COVID testing, which is something I haven't done for years. We know that um, um, I would say most of the world, if we don't talk about the population of China, has been living pretty much normal lives and COVID has sort of become a thing of the past. And here, as soon as I arrived into my hotel, I had to do it. Uh, COVID tests and uh, the Chinese delegations and journalists all wear masks. So this looks like a throwback to 2020. And also, just just final thing, um, yeah, um, really astounding security presence uh, and uh, um, I would say possibly quite intrusive presence by uh, the Uzbek authorities who are uh, who have assigned a minder to every uh, member of the press. Um, so um, uh, that means that you don't really get much time of, on your own. You get wined and dined and offered to do things. Um, and as it is, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm looking back at, at the Biden summit or at, at the G7 or G8 summits that I have been in the past, um, journalists more or less are allowed to mingle with the delegations, if not with the leaders of the states as such. But yes, you sometimes um, uh, there's a press center somewhere on the um, on the fringes of, of, the, of the venue of the actual meeting room. But you're you're not that far away. Here we're sitting in a tent about one two kilometers away from the venue. Um, there is a giant screen on which they're going to broadcast the meeting between Xi and Putin, which is about to start. But uh, there's no way we're going to get anywhere near. And this morning, uh, um, the word came out that we probably were not even going to allow it into the press center over here, like 200 kilo two, two, two kilometers away. So, yeah, this is um, that's quite extraordinary. Well, President Putin and President Xi last saw each other a few weeks before the invasion of Ukraine. Could you just sketch for us what happened there and how... Um, and how the relationship between China and Russia might have changed during the last six months and, and, and end up talking a little bit about what Putin's trying to get from, from this summit. Um, I know that a lot of people are looking back at that meeting as uh, Putin's possible attempt to 
uh, if not brief, see about his uh, ultimate intentions in Ukraine, but at least to test the waters and see what what he would think if Russia was to launch that invasion. Um, at that meeting, uh, the Chinese and the Russians famously pledged a friendship with no limits, as they described it. Um, as um, And there was a lot of expectations among the Russian establishment and the Russian population that the Chinese are going to come to Russia's rescue in the face of international sanctions, um, while the rest of the world has been shutting down to Russia, cancelling uh, flights, cutting off business tides, um, cancelling Russian business cards. Um, but we saw very uh, soon um, after the start of the war that the Chinese were not going to uh, help out Russia at their own expense. Um, Chinese banks uh, have been extremely careful dealing with their Russian counterparts. Um, uh, there's a clear understanding that there's no um, there's no way that China would even consider selling arms to Russia, as the West has done for Ukraine. Um, uh, they have been cautious uh, not to condemn Russia for the invasion, uh, nor have they cheered it. What they did, they just used the invasion and the and the whole crisis as a chance to uh, blame the West for. Um, punishing Russia with sanctions, for seeking to um, impose a world order on their terms. Uh, but they have been very careful um, about um, uh, dealing with Russian, with the Russian state and with Russian state companies. And now, almost seven months into the invasion, um, there's a clear understanding that um, there are very few deliverables that Putin might get from this meeting. Uh, we're not talking about any, there's there's no military aid to speak of, obviously. Um, um, in terms of economic, uh, in terms of business deals, there could be something very limited. Um, you might think that China might be a new market for Russian energy, um, which it could. Uh, but if you talk about oil, for example, um, it's not that easy to um, for Russia to ditch Europe suddenly and start selling all its oil to uh, China, simply because there are no pipelines. I mean, there is there's one recent pipeline, but the capacity is very limited. Even if Russia wanted to sell more energy and, and boost those energy supplies significantly, right now, in 2022, there's just no capacity uh, for it. And Russia has been selling uh, oil and gas to China at a discount, as it is because it has been um, suffering those problems on the European markets. So you mentioned there's only a few deliverables Putin might be get. What might might get from this? What might they be? Well, at this point, um, obviously, when as as, as Dom Dom has uh, painted a very good this picture of a desperation uh, among Russian nationalists, among the Russian military, when we see uh, Russia losing lands in Ukraine. So at this point, um, I think he would be grateful for any. Uh, strong, uh, strong backing, even in terms of rhetoric, even if, 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 if China was, was to say that, you know, it's, it supports Russia in, um, standing up for its national interests, for its sovereignty, the way Putin has described. Um, uh, what, what we have seen in the past, those, um, high level meetings between Putin and Xi leaders of China, um, they they don't typically announce um, business deals as, as such. They, they might be talking about boosting energy supplies, but that would mean investing in, in, in infrastructure. They so it's it's quite likely that they will um, they will pledge um, 
uh, deeper cooperation on the energy sector. But this is something that's not going to change overnight, and we're we're not going to see things change, um, you know, this year or this month. It takes a lot of investment and time to to build those pipelines, for example, to build infrastructure. Something that uh, Dom has spoken about quite a few times is how the Russian invasion of Ukraine, rather than dividing the West, actually united it. And we see Finland and Sweden joining NATO. In your article, you write that the disastrous war in Ukraine, which has cost thousands of lives, ruined international reputation, um, etc., etc., risks turning Russia into China's junior partner in Central Asia. And I wonder whether that's almost the flip side of in in the West, Russia's lost influence and has united the West. In the East, it's lost influence to China, uh, and as you write, it's becoming could become the junior partner. Is that is that a fair assessment, or do, do those things link together? Do you think? I would say it's quite a distinctive possibility, uh, because before the war, Russia used to juggle. Um, uh, between different partners, you know, one day they would speak to Chinese, next day they would try to pit. Europe against the US, or uh, if not necessarily the EU, but several European nations like Italy or Greece, who have traditionally been quite friendly to Russia. Um, and that has changed entirely. And uh, in terms of um, strategic allies, uh, ma- major economies, there's just not much for Russia to rely on. Uh, Japan has uh, turned against Russia, the EU, the US, that only leaves China. And that leaves Russia very little room for leeway, very little room for negotiating. You know, if you, uh, if I go back to, to the issue of energy and oil and gas, we're not in a situation where Putin could play Europe against China and say, you know, if we don't sell this gas to Europe, we can sell it in China and the other way around. There's just... Um, he really is left with very little leverage uh, because if we look at, at countries like um, India or other developing economies, the size of their economies are just, um, um, they just pale in comparison with that of, of Europe and the US. So it really leaves Russia with China. Dom is chafing at the bit to ask a few questions, I think. So please, Dom Nichols. Uh, always chafing. Uh, Natalia, hi, <laughs> great great to speak to you again. I'm so glad to have you, have you to hear you out there. Um, could you take us please, a, a, a quick whistle-stop tour around Central Asia. And I, I know there's a big ask in a short time, but, but uh, yeah, Putin, part of, this, part of this war is about, is about the you know, grandeurs of former Soviet glory, blah, 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 blah. And you make the point in your article today that Kyrgyzstan, Tajikistan have, uh, are, are, are more indebted to China than, um, than perhaps Uzbekistan and, uh, and maybe others. And we've, we spoke recently about the position of Kazakhstan that m- might possibly be trying to just put a little bit of a distance between itself and Moscow. But equally, the last few days, there's been, there's been a flare-up in uh, Armenia and Azerbaijan. So, so just the, the, this, the near abroad, the former Soviet states in Central Asia that Putin would like to, like to see as his backyard, they, do, they don't seem to be playing ball. And, and if they're leaning anywhere, they seem to be leaning away from Russia or bar kind of Armenia, really, um, and and actively towards China. So I just wonder if you can give us a paint a little picture there, please. Yeah, uh, great question, Tom. Yeah, with, with Kazakhstan, um, um, just a couple of months ago, Putin was hosting what used to be called the um, Russian um, um, International Economic Forum, uh, which has gone... Uh, quite national in terms of how difficult it has been for Russia to invite any foreign dignitary, uh, dignitaries to that. Uh, the president of Kazakhstan was uh, the high note speaker. He was the probably m- most prominent speaker on that panel. And um, 
He made quite extraordinary remarks at that meeting when he was asked by the moderator um, of the panel session about Kazakhstan's position on the invasion of Ukraine. And right, uh, right there, you know, staring at Putin, he said that Kazakhstan does not support the war. It doesn't support the invasion, nor does it recognize the annexation of Crimea and it stands by uh, um, Ukraine's sovereignty. Um which shows um, how little uh, leverage Russia has in those countries now since it started started the war. Um, obviously, that's that's that there was quite an extraordinary moment and extraordinary words coming from uh, Kasim Jomar Takayev, the president of Kazakhstan, whose very rule was in danger just in January when he faced violent riots, and just in a matter of days. Um, those um, riots uh, stopped when a Russia-led security alliance uh, sent troops to Kazakhstan. So uh, one, might, one might say that it was actually Putin who saved um, uh, Tokayev's uh, uh, political career by sending those troops, but apparently it doesn't matter anymore. Um, Kazakhstan, just like Uzbekistan, um, has been reaching out to China and to other countries and tried, tried to be very careful in choosing its allies and trying not to put all eggs in one basket, as I might say. Um, in terms of Tajikistan and Kyrgyzstan, as you have mentioned, which have smaller um, economies and poorer populations compared to Kazakhstan and Uzbekistan, um, they have been strongly involved in China's um, uh, Belt and Road Initiative, which has resulted in very high levels of, of debt um, um, which is a phenomenon we have seen across the developing world, especially in Sri Lanka. And for a country like Uzbekistan, uh, which was a, which was quite an as isolated regime um, under the dictator Islam Karimov just until six years ago, Uzbekistan has used it as a cautionary tale because they saw how um, dependent those two countries have become on Chinese investment. And that um, debt repay repayments are um, uh, beckoning. So Uzbekistan is in a, on a crossroads right now because um, clearly the sort of life-changing landmark projects in Russia um, are off the table right now because Russia has become toxic. Um, but they have also been quite careful here about relying too much on China because they see what it could mean in terms of debt levels and an over-reliance on one country. And just if I might, just to, just to follow up on that, so this is this speaks of a, of a little bit, if not turmoil, but then the just a little bit of of um, a, a bit of an unsettled environment in Central Asia, and we know that China does not like China loves stability and likes likes order. So how are these kind of conversations and these slightly shifting positions? viewed uh, by China, do you think? Bearing in mind, China is responsible for, for a lot of it with Belt and Road and, and the infrastructure projects. But, but, but generally, this, the knock-on implications of some of, these, some of these investments into the security sphere, um, how, do you think, how is that viewed, do you think, from China? China is, qu is quite worried about uh, Russia's position in Central Asia now. Um, as uh, you might know, um, Central Asia borders on, on Afghanistan, and this is the place where Russia has hosted. Um, uh, Russia has um, has had several uh, military based uh, bases throughout the years, and obviously we're in a time when uh, Russia is running low on manpower. 
Um, and we've been hearing voices about a potential scale down of uh, Russian military presence in those countries. And throughout the years, um, China has been um, okay with Russia um, uh, providing security in that region, being the security guarantor. Uh, China didn't have much interest in building military bases in that region. Um, so uh, one thing that Xi would be looking uh, at the meeting with Putin today is his assurances that uh, Putin wouldn't pack up all of the troops here and send them to the Ukrainian fronts because they have been relying on Russia to, in a, in a way, to maintain um, law and order here, just like they did in Kazakhstan in, in January, you know, when, when they needed troops to send in to uh, quell that armed uprising, they did. And um, right now in the middle of the Ukrainian war, would they have that capability? Would they want to use it? That's, um, that's, that's it. It's a question we've all been asking. Just, just a question from me, Natalia. You spoke earlier about what a win for Putin might look like uh, in this meeting, um, and you and you said, you know, there aren't that many deliverables, but strong rhetorical support that you know that that would be appreciated. What, just for our listeners following the meeting or seeing it in their seeing it in, in their news apps and newspapers, what would failure look like? I would say that there's an expectation that at least on the rhetorical level, he would take an extra mile um, and. Um, criticize Western leadership or, or recent steps, or uh, maybe try to defend Putin against um, accusation of nuclear blackmail. I think the failure, um, I mean, if you look at different public statements by the Chinese leadership, they are all um, very calm, devoid of any emotion. And it's very, it's, it's really, you know, you can see that they, uh, they are very afraid of putting their foot wrong every time. Um, so I think the failure would look like um, if C made it look as if nothing changed, as if things are normal, as if Russia doesn't need extra support or extra, you know, kind word on his behalf. Uh, and if he made it sound as if it was business as usual, as if Russia did not face an existential crisis, because it does face an existential crisis right now with the way the war in Ukraine is going. Yeah, some something like that. Yeah. Is there anything else we haven't spoken about, Natalia, that you think would be interesting for our in, uh, our listeners to to hear? Yeah, I mean, I think it's just worth mentioning that it's not just Putin and Xi who are meeting today. Uh, um, they are meeting on the sidelines um, of this uh, uh, major summit, which has been described as the Strong Men Leader Summit. So we're also seeing the presidents of Turkey. Uh, Recep Tayyip Erdogan um, meeting Putin tomorrow. And this is another meeting I would look out for as um, Erdogan has been quite active in trying to mediate between Vladimir Zelensky and Vladimir Putin uh, to try to bring a ceasefire or mediate a grain deal uh, for Ukrainian grain exports as, as he has. And um, we heard before, um, we heard earlier this week from um, Turkish diplomats, that Erdogan might try to ask Putin to recommend, to offer, to host uh, direct talks between him and Zelensky. So far, uh, Kremlin has denied this possibility. They said it makes no sense to come and sit and talk with them. But um, it looks like Erdogan is going to have to, is going is to try and get Putin to talk to Zelensky again. Well, thank you very much, Natalia Vasilyeva. Dom, are there any more updates we should talk about? Or shall we go to our final thoughts? As a final thought, I would just ask us to keep an eye on Armenia, Azerbaijan. As we said, this violence flared up um, the other night. 
I mean, and and I'd be really keen to hear over the next few days, Natalia, what the what the mood music is there about this, about this idea that perhaps so Russia that backs Armenia, Russia seen potentially seen as weak, and maybe that's the reason Azerbaijan decided on. Let me see, Monday night, Monday night starts shelling uh, Armenia, but maybe taking advantage of of Russia's relative weakness in terms of security right now and the inability to to sort of take on another another problem. So I'll be keen to hear your thoughts on that in the next few days. But um, we are told we we hear that uh, under CSTO, the Collective Security Treaty Organization, which Russia would have have us like to think as their kind of equivalent of NATO, so it's Russia, Armenia, and a load of the Stans. Um, it's it's effectively sort of ninety eight percent Russia, uh, regardless of what the uniforms are. But it's 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 Russia. Um, the, the Armenia has invoked their Article Four, which is the equivalent of NATO's Article Five, as in the it's the the mutual defence clause. Um, and interestingly, Russia says it's going to provide observer missions, but not any military aid to Armenia. So whether or not that speaks of Russia's inability to provide military aid as in a, a, a formation a brigade or, or what have you or send any any equipment um, we don't know but it is interesting that that you know historically Russia backed Armenia has asked for military support and they're getting um, an observer mission so we, we need to keep our eye on that and see if um, if uh, Azerbaijan develops that or, or any any thoughts any further thoughts on on Russia's inability to export security given they're they're in the in the in the mire in the mud in ukraine so that'd be my final thought and i'd be really keen over the next uh, next few days to hear any fallout from that from the uh, from the from the uh, shanghai cooperation organization summit would you like to add anything to that natalia yeah i'm totally with dom on the armenia azerbaijan uh question in fact i have heard um uh, azerbaijani and armenian contacts for months telling me that they were afraid of a flare-up just at the time when as they put it it wasn't about to weaken russia it was about the fact that russia's attention was elsewhere that the kremlin had no time or attention for anything other than ukraine and this is this is what we saw um uh the, the the clashes went largely um um unnoticed uh by kremlin and there's obviously we can see that there's very uh, little willingness on on moscow's part to do anything so yeah this is something i would look out for in the coming weeks and natalia can i just get your final thoughts from samarkand in uzbekistan what should our listeners be thinking of uh, when they look at this summit over the next few days yeah i'm, I'm gonna start from from um from, from today, from the Xi-Putin meeting. Um, obviously, there's been a lot of talk about a unified anti-Western front uh, with uh, Russia and China against the West. Uh, Russia obviously is in a very weak position right now. It doesn't really have much to offer in terms of economy or the military power as such. Um, it would be interesting to see if um, Xi um, were to um, at least verbally commit to any major energy project or if he was willing to... Um, um, give Putin a hand in um, dealing with all of the surplus of oil and gas that Russia is going to have in, in the next years. And yes, I would definitely look out for the um, a meeting between the president of Turkey and Russia tomorrow as as a possible chance for peace and truce. As um, we have we have mentioned, that President Erdogan is trying to mediate between Russia and uh, Turkey and and Ukraine. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first 30 days completely free 
at telegraph.co.uk slash audio. And sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider following Ukraine The Latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing podcasts at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. And we are especially interested to hear where you are listening from around the world. Ukraine The Latest is produced by Louisa Wells and Giles Gere.